The material contained in the Divergent Clear podcast is for informational purposes only. The ideas and opinions expressed in the podcast does not represent the views or missions of the National Rail Passenger Corporation or Amtrak or the Washington Metro Rail Safety Commission. This is a Divergent Clear podcast. Approach Diverging, milepost 20.04. Diverging Clear, milepost 20.06. Welcome to Diverging Clear, your transportation podcast, with your hosts, William Moore and Jermaine Walker. And welcome to the Diverging Clear podcast, episode 6. Why does it take so long to get issue, I mean infrastructure, built in America? Simple question, right? Yes, it is a simple question, but not a so simple answer. How did America go from building the Transcontinental Railroad, the Erie Canal, Hoover Dam, Grand Coulee Dam, the Golden Gate Bridge, the National Power Grid, reverse the floor of the Chicago River to keep drinking water? keep the drinking water supply of Lake Michigan from becoming contaminated, and the interstate highway system to having projects sit on the drawing board for sometimes decades at a time. For example, starting locally for me, the Nickty Westlake project. This project was first proposed and discussed when I was about 10 years old. Yes, I am 40 now. I read a newspaper article in the Hammond Times about transforming the ex-Monon CSX right away into a commuter rail line after the last rail customer, the Hammond Times, relocated its print facility to Munster, Indiana. That was in 1990. The project received its first, received its final funding agreement in October of 2020, with construction slated to begin in the summer, in the late summer of 2021, a full 31 years from proposal to shovels in the dirt for a railroad project. Now let's talk about a highway construction example. This one, this one was in metropolitan Chicago area, the west and southwest suburbs to be exact. Let's talk about the Interstate 355 project. The planning for this for this project began in 1962. That's correct, 1962. This was when the original alignment for I-355 was defined. After numerous reviews and revisions as part of the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers released its Environmental Impact Statement on October 8, 1986. Construction began a few months later. The north section of I-355 between Interstate 55 and Interstate 290 officially opened on December 22, 1989. That was a total of 37 years to build 20 miles of highway. The south section of I-355 project would take quite a bit of time to come to fruition. The planning began shortly after the completion of the north north section of I-355. In 1989, the Illinois General Assembly authorized the Illinois Tollway Authority to begin the planning for the south section between I-55 in Bolingbrook, Illinois, 
at Interstate 80 near New Lenox, Illinois. The construction did not begin until late 2004. The last 12.5-mile section of I-355 was completed on November 11, 2007, Veterans Day. The south section took approximately 18 years to complete. Yes, 18 years. So when you total that up, we're looking at 55 years to build 32.5 miles of highway in the state of Illinois. But why? Remember when I mentioned the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA for short? Well, this directly affects projects' timelines. But the next question is why? Well, let me break, first break down NEPA and the reason why it became an integral part of major federal and state transportation infrastructure projects. What is the National Environmental Policy Act? According to the U.S. EPA official website, the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, was signed into law on January 1, 1970. NEPA requires federal agencies to assess the environmental effects of their proposed actions prior to making decisions. The range of these actions covered by NEPA is broad and includes making decisions on permit applications, adopting federal land management actions, and constructing highways and other public, publicly owned facilities. Using the NEPA process, agencies evaluate the environmental and related social and, eco, social and economic effects of their proposed actions. Agencies also provide opportunities for public review and comments on those evaluations. What does NEPA require? Title I of NEPA contains a declaration of national environmental policy. This policy requires the federal government to use all practical means to create and maintain conditions under which man and nature can, can exist in, a, in productive harmony. Section 102 in Title I of the Act requires federal agencies to incorporate environmental considerations in their planning and decision-making through a systematic interdisciplinary approach. Specifically, all federal agencies are to prepare detailed statements assessing the environmental impact of and alternatives to major federal actions significantly affecting the environment. These statements are commonly referred to as Environmental Impact Statements, EIS, and Environmental Assessments. So that's kind of the Cliff Notes versions of what, of what the NEPA is. But the question is, why was it created? Well, during the process of some of those aforementioned projects, the, uh, in particular the interstate highway system, uh, there were a lot of, uh, I guess, what quote-unquote would be called unintentional consequences, but uh, they really were actually kind of intentional consequences. And this was... Uh, created to help protect the environment and the impact of certain projects on the overall environment, but also to evaluate and uh, ascertain uh, what economic and social hardships certain projects could cause. Uh, I'm going to read a couple uh, articles here in particular about the uh, um, just detailing some of the uh, impacts that some of these projects had, and some of them were uh, quite honestly, uh, designed 
um, and they get, then they achieve their design consequences. And um, one particular, a couple instances here we'll, we'll discuss. Um, the first one I'm going to read here is an article published. It was uh, published on March 31st, 2016 by Alan Pike. He discusses with then Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox, how America used highways to destroy black neighborhoods. He discussed what happened in the city of Charlotte. Here's an excerpt from that article. In the first 20 years of the federal interstate system alone, Fox said, highway construction displaced 475,000 families and over a million Americans. Most of them were low-income people of color and urban cores. It was Fox's second speech in a many days about how the federal infrastructure projects contribute to inequality and poverty and how the agency wants to make up for it now. What the secretary is doing appears unprecedented, the Washington Post notes. Fox, only the third African-American to ever hold the top federal transportation policy job, is explicitly, explicitly acknowledging and condemning a history of destroying black communities and stealing wealth from their residents through intentional decisions. This article goes on to talk about a, a neighborhood in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. It's called Goodbye, Brooklyn. Fox grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a neighborhood that had been hewn apart by expressway projects before he was born. And Fox is quoted saying, I grew up living with those barriers, even though I had no idea how they came to be or what they really meant, he said. Eventually, he became mayor of his hometown and developed a much clearer understanding of what white leaders in the city had done to his community. Fox cited the case of the now-vanished Charlotte neighborhood called Brooklyn, where black families of both blue-collar and professional means thrived in the early and middle 20th century. It was, it was a favorite overnight stop for jazz greats like Duke Ellington when he played the city and home to both Charlotte's first black high school and first free black library in the whole South. By 1912, the local paper captured the prevailing views that Brooklyn was far too valuable to be left to African-Americans, Fox said. They wrote, in fact, that far-sighted men believed that eventually this section, because of the proximity to the center of the city, must sooner or later be utilized by the white population. Redlining and urban renewal followed, making the community untenable for residents and newcomers alike. In a single decade, the white city leaders ripped out almost 1,500 buildings in Brooklyn, displacing over 1,000 black families and 200 mostly black businesses. And when Charlotte eviscerated Brooklyn, Road projects served as the scalpels. First came Independence Boulevard, which cut a gash through the community, the secretary, the secretary said. Later, an inner beltway, I-277, which remains to this day stabbed like a stabbed fork-like into the neighborhood's heart. As the interstate system routed in, into and around Charlotte's downtown over the coming decades, the city's old identity of interlocked, rich and poor neighborhoods devolved. Today, poverty clings to the freeways like a shadow. Brooklyn's invisible today, but is far from alone. In the same article, uh, they mentioned a uh, relocation of or expansion of uh, Lambert International Airport in St. Louis. Here's a small excerpt from that. 
the airport plan that built the ghetto. The two wasn't always roads, and the decisions themselves weren't always made back in the midst of the pre-civil rights area pre-civil rights era social order. In the early 1980s, for example, the city of St. Louis started buying out middle-class black residents of Kenlock, Missouri, so that nearby Lambert International Airport could expand its runway network. For the airlines and other businesses at Lambert, the project promised hundreds of millions of dollars in profits by speeding up the flow of traffic through the airport. With planes spending less time idling on the tarmac, study predicted that nearby residents would also benefit from a form of better air quality. But for the state's longest standing black city, its bakeries and drugstores, public schools, and projects spelled doom. After a series of buyouts that locals say felt more like arm twisting than a genuine personal choice to stay or sell Kenlock's population, plunged from over 4,000 to below 300. I think the I think the interesting thing about that is where they went. Fox said in an Fox said in a in an interview. Many of them, most of them, ended up moving into a town called Ferguson. We all know about Ferguson. Even for a free market type, supportive of such deals, Kenlock's story story comes with a sour footnote. Business dealings elsewhere send airline traffic through Lambert into a nosedive. It now has more capacity than it actually needs. St. Louis tore down a self-made black community and pushed its residents into civic cages like Ferguson without even capturing the new airport's profits that had justified the town's dismantling in the first place. According to Fox, he said, American can do far better balancing needed infrastructure expansions with the interests of local communities. It just has to try. So that was one article, one example, uh, or two examples, I'm sorry, uh, talking about uh, the way that uh, the black neighborhood of uh, Brooklyn uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina was destroyed, how the the town of Kenlock, uh, Missouri, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, was destroyed uh, for the purpose of expanding the airport, and most of the you know the the predictions and the studies um, that was uh, saying that it was going to uh, generate uh, all these additional revenues for the uh, airport never came to fruition. So you know this is these are just two examples, but I got one more example that I want to use to point out as to the reason of uh, these situations are sort of what NEPA was designed for, but as you can see, it's had varying results. NEPA wasn't in place when that uh, Brooklyn neighborhood, uh, or the neighborhood of Brooklyn and Charlotte was uh, basically uh, dismantled. But NEPA was in effect when uh, the Lambert uh, Airport expansion took place in St. Louis. So it's as you can see, there's contrasting uh, results of NEPA, but uh, just one more example I want to use to show the uh, the sort of the why as to why uh, NEPA was established. In this article, this next article I'm going to read is from The Atlantic. It discusses, uh, the title of the article was The Role of Highways in American Poverty. They seemed like such a good idea in the 1950s. 
I'm just going to read an excerpt from this as uh, they described the situation that took place in Syracuse, New York. Um, so uh, I'm going to read it. Say, read a short excerpt from it. Just said, just to give you a little bit more background as to why this process is uh, has been taking place. So according to the uh, article from the Atlantic, uh, give me a second here. Sorry about that. So here's the excerpt from the Atlantic. Luckily for city planners who wanted to keep their cities healthy, there was federal money available to, to anyone who wanted to put in modern highways. While the 1944 Federal Highway Act only offered, up, offered to cover 50% of construction costs for highways, by 1956, the federal government had upped that share to 90%. So if you were a city planner in the 1950s, you could put roads from your city to fast-growing suburbs for almost no cost at all. Of course, there were people who couldn't move to the suburbs. African Americans were denied home loans by the federal government in certain areas, a practice called redlining. Restrictive covenants prevented homeowners from selling to certain types of people, often including African Americans. And they were also denied jobs and other opportunities that would have allowed them to afford to buy a home in the first place. When I was, when I was in Syracuse, I met a man named Manny Breland who received a scholarship to play basketball at Syracuse, graduated with a teaching degree, and was denied job after job because he was black. In many cities, these restrictions left African-Americans crowded into small neighborhoods. They essentially weren't allowed to move anywhere else. City planners had a solution for this too. They saw the crowded African-American areas as unhealthy organs that needed to be removed. To keep cities healthy, planners said that these areas needed to be cleared and redeveloped. The clogged hearts replaced with something newer and spiffier. But open heart surgery on a city is expensive. Highway construction could be federally funded. Why not use those federal highway dollars to also tear down blight and rebuild city centers? The urban planner Robert Moses was one of the first to propose the idea of using highways to redeem urban areas. In 1949, the commission of the Bureau of public roads, Thomas McDonald even tried to include the idea of highway construction as a technique for urban renewal in a national housing bill. He was rebuffed. But in cities across America, especially those that didn't want to or couldn't spend their own money for so-called urban renewal, the idea began to take hold. They could have their highways and they could get rid of their slums. With just one surgery, they could put put in more arteries and they, could re and they could remove the city's heart. This is exactly what happened in Syracuse, New York. The city had big dreams of becoming an East Coast hub. Since it was so close to New York City, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Boston, in the early days of car closest relative. Use federal funds to fund a series of highways planners thought, and residents could easily get to, get to the suburbs and to other cities in the region. After all, who wouldn't want to live in Syracuse that you could easily leave, that you could easily leave by car? And if they put, a, put the highway in just the right place, it would allow the city to use federal funds to eradicate what they called a slum area in the center city. That neighborhood called the 15th Ward was located between Syracuse University and the city's downtown. It was predominantly African-American. 
One man who lived there at the time, Junie Dunham, told me that although the 15th War was poor, it was a type of community that was that you often pictured in the 1950s America. Fathers going off to work in the morning, kids playing in the streets, families gathering in the park on the weekends or going on Sunday strolls. He remembers collecting straps from the streets and bringing them to the junkyard for pennies, which he would use to buy comics. To outsiders, though, the 15th War was seen of abject poverty close to two of the city's, uh, Syracuse's biggest draws, a university in downtown. They worried about race riots because so many people were, crowd, were crowded into the neighborhood and prevented from going anywhere else. They decided the best plan would be to tear down the 15th Ward and replace it with the elevated freeway. The completion of the, of the highway, I-81, which ran through the urban center, had the same effects it had in almost all cities that put interstates through their hearts. It decimated a close-knit African-American community. And when the displaced residents from the 15th Ward moved to other city neighborhoods, the white residents fled. Easy, it was easy to move. There was a beautiful new highway that helped them, that helped their escape. But this dynamic hurt the city finances too. As suburbs grew, they broke off from the cities, taking with them their tax revenues, even though their residents still use city services. Although Syracuse, the region, was relatively healthy, the city started to get very sick. Between 1940 and 2000, the population of the city of Syracuse shrank 30% from about 205,000 to 147,000. The population of Onondaga County, where Syracuse is located, grew 55% from 295,000 to 458,000. Even today, the region is continuing to sprawl. The population of Onondaga County peaked in 1970 and has stayed even since then. But residents are moving farther and farther out. The county added 7,000 housing units, 147 subdivisions, and 61 miles of new roads since 2000. Developers build 160 units a year in areas that were once rural. That's costing the county money and resources as and as it adds sewer system, water pipes, and stormwater drainage to far-flung subdivisions. As the county spends money, the city is struggling to come up with enough revenue for essential things like mass transit and schools. So just uh, that's just another example of what, um, as I quote-unquote call it, American progress has caused um some of the effects it has had it you know in particular on the uh black communities and, and low-income communities of america um nepa was supposed to help with that but as, as you can see with the lambert international airport uh nepa was in effect then but it still had a dire effect on particular communities the one interesting thing that i, I liked uh that uh Secretary Anthony Fox said from the Obama administration was, we, we can do better, we just have to try. And I believe, you know, to the core of things as we're looking at the, the uh, need for infrastructure updates and numerous things that take place here, that that is true. Uh, things can be done better, we just have to try. We have to try to have it have a better impact um, than what the original plans were for these projects. Uh, we're going to take a short break, catch my breath here a bit, did a little bit of reading there. So uh, 
Now, I don't want to uh, put anybody to sleep right now. A lot of information there. But uh, when we return, I'll do a little bit more of analysis of the NEPA and uh, have my closing statement. So uh, hang tight. Uh, here's a word from our sponsors, and I'll talk to you soon. Diverging Clear is sponsored by EME Rail Solutions, LLC. We don't own rail cars, locomotives, or tracks. But if you do, we provide cutting-edge solutions to maximize your assets. Visit us at emerail.net to learn more. Diverging Clear is also brought to you by Three Kings Freight Brokerage, LLC. Visit threekingsfreightbrokeragellc.com to learn more about their services. And welcome back to the Diverging Clear Podcast. I'm your host, William Moore. And uh, getting back into uh, where we left off here, um, just a couple questions here, and, you know, hopefully a few short answers. Um, so why, you know, we kind of summed up uh, the reason why NEPA was created, but there's another process, uh, you know, another question here. Uh, has the process been hijacked? And what do I mean by has the NEPA process been uh, been hijacked? Or has the process been hijacked to a detriment to the overall American society? You know, has the process been hijacked to the point where people use it uh, for uh, unintended or for intended purposes uh, that reach outside the realm of the intention of the original uh, NEPA Act? And that, that, the question to that, or the answer to that, is just look anywhere in your, in your local communities and see where uh, you have major infrastructure projects that's been on a di- di- uh, drawing board for what sometimes appears to be decades. Um, I gave you a couple examples that's, uh, you know, sort of in my Midwest backyard here. But if you look at, you know, other areas of the country, uh, there are similar projects that, uh, that stay on a, in the environmental review on a drawing board for years and years and years. And oftentimes what ends up happening is it's uh, that the NEPA process is used as an effective stalling tactic to basically get projects uh, from ever uh, coming to fruition. What do I mean by that? Well, it's sort of the, the classic stall, pro- uh, uh, stall and uh, stall until the project becomes too expensive to where it's feasible anymore. We've seen this numerous times with various projects, um, like I said, concerning roads, highways, uh, public uh, mass transit systems, um, even schools. Uh, You've seen, you know, communities use these different uh, tactics and these processes to delay and ultimately kill uh, projects of significant, you know, that, uh, that would be of significance to the communities that they would serve or to the uh, states that they would serve. So yeah, the, the process has been hijacked and I've seen it, like I said, I've seen it numerous times. So you can look at your backyard, if you're anywhere any near any major uh, metropolitan areas where you know they're looking to do things to improve either traffic flow or the way that um, people move and even the way that uh, uh, people are able to obtain services such as water um, you know, maybe hospitals, uh, you know, different things like that. So when you look at that, the, the process has at, at some point at some point become uh, a tool of the what I like to call the NIMBYs. If you don't know what a NIMBY is, it's called uh, Not In My Backyard, N-I-M-B. Uh, 
and they like to use the, the NEPA process to promote their project, their objection to any projects that may uh, benefit others besides themselves. So in that regards, it has been hijacked. Now, you know, like I said, as we mentioned before, NEPA was initially intended to make sure that major federal and state infrastructure projects did, did not adversely affect the natural environment and or the communities that the projects would impact. And with that, that very last statement there, natural environment and communities that the projects would impact, it doesn't say never build a project. It's, the process is designed more so to minimize the, the negative effects that a project may have on a, on a particular area, or especially in the natural environment. Um, as I remember, as a, my first couple years and when I was a, uh, First got into management uh, as a dispatcher for the EJ&E Railroad. Uh, we had an area down in, um, just outside of Joliet, uh, down in Romeoville, we had an area uh, that was in an environmentally sensitive area. And that was because they had uh, the, uh, I believe it's the Monarch Dragonfly. I can't remember exactly what it is, but uh, we had uh, environmentally sensitive areas that we operated trains through. And because of that, we had certain restrictions that we had to operate. Uh, we called it in the in the springtime, we called it bug season. So we had a, a bug spray or bug speed limit that our trains could go and operate through that environment to minimize or mitigate the impact of our trains operating through that area. Speaking of those same uh, dragonflies, uh, those caused a significant <laughs> um Delaying that I-355 Southern Section project because that uh that highway runs parallel to the area that we operated in, and that was something big that uh, that impacted the and delayed that project until they could figure out what was a way that they could have the least amount of impact on that endangered species. Which I which I said it comes to be, you figure out a way to work around it where you you're not having a, a, a detrimental impact on the environment. So, you know, there's things that can be done, but it shouldn't be. And there's we've got so much science and knowledge now that we can mitigate just about anything. Uh, so, you know, that's you know, that's one interesting thing. Another thing that was interesting in that area is that we had a, a actual crossing for uh, <laughs> for the turtles in that environmentally sensitive area. The railroad built a turtle crossing so that the turtles were funneled through this area <laughs> under the train track so that the turtles didn't have to worry about trying to climb over the rails to reach the other side of their habitat. So if a, if a company can come up with a turtle crossing them to protect the turtles, like I said, that's NEPA doing its job and it's also doing its job in protecting the environment and allowing, a, uh, allowing humans to interact with the environment in a way where everybody can still be good. So those are just a couple examples that I, you know, that, that I use. They said NEPA can work, but it, it can't be used to, it shouldn't be used to to, to stymie pro, uh, progress in America. And I think as long as we can get away from that, uh, that NEPA can have good outcomes, but we need to keep it within a realm of not driving uh, uh, driving the, the, the cost of uh, particular infrastructure projects uh, to the astronomical numbers. Uh, just so that the project can be built. So that's one thing that you do have to worry about and you do have to pay attention to when it comes 
to uh, to the NEPA and uh, the need to you know improve and, and and invest in our infrastructure. It shouldn't just be a no because it may have an impact. Figure out a way to mitigate those impacts, and then let's keep it moving so that we can progress and get you know get things that that our country much uh, really need and needed you know pretty fast coming up here. So here, this is the last thing that I'll have for this uh, evening. I'll go ahead and give you my closing statements and my closing thoughts on this uh, on this episode of why does it take so so long to get stuff, I mean, infrastructure built in America. <laughs> the process of building major infrastructure has become a very ardent task for good reason, though. I use the Charlotte and Syracuse and St. Louis examples but these stories were replicated in every major city that interstate highways came to, including Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Los Angeles, New York, just to name a few. Oh, yeah. One more point, as was as was uh, explained in the St. Louis situations. Airports and airport expansions have often targeted black and minority communities, and these weren't quote unquote, just low income or impoverished areas, as was the example uh, when they expanded Lambert in International Airport in St. Louis. So we have learned how to better plan our transportation networks. So I'm sorry, so have we learned to better plan our transportation work networks? The answer is yes, yes we have. And with that knowledge, and with that knowledge, we need to be able to update these networks and provide equitable systems that provides much needed employment, cleaner and more efficient ways to move goods and people. With the NEPA process, we can actually right the wrongs of America's past by delivering better infrastructure solutions, including new and updated highways, railroads, public transportation systems, schools, hospitals, high-speed internet connectivity, and clean water systems to bring better opportunities to communities that were disenfranchised by quote-unquote American progress. America is on the cusp of bringing major projects to life that can, that can and will become the envy of the world. We just have to take a chance and stop being the nation of no and go back to being the nation of innovation and where the only limits we have are the limits of our imagination. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Divergent Clear Podcast. Don't forget to leave your feedback at divergentclearpodcast at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. You can also follow us at Divergent Clear Podcast on Instagram. That's Divergent underscore Clear underscore Podcast. And on Twitter at Divergent Clear One. Thank you again for, for joining me today. Stay safe and talk to you soon. Have a good one.